It's like almost like if I could say it, I wouldn't have to do it. And as a kid, you just know it. Everybody knows it. I think most people do as a child. And then there's this sort of amnesia that happens, you know, and it's just so hard to get back to it. But it's such a vital part of being alive. Hello, my beautiful friends. I'm so happy to be here with you. And I just wanted to say that to start off today's show. I've just, I think about you all the time, imagining who could be a great guest, who's going to reach into your heart and ignite. And I walk around my world thinking about you and that more often than probably anything else. So thank you for bringing me that joy. I wanted to tell you, you know, one thing that has happened to me over the course of the last year in making this podcast is I've kind of lost my way from my own artwork. I've had a couple friends and listeners say to me, hey, be careful about that because, you know, you can't let your work take away from your creativity. And I've thought about that. I knew I wasn't painting as much and I wasn't making as much jewelry as I had before, but I'm creating this beautiful podcast, which is another form of creativity. And so I'm kind of off the hook a little bit with that. That being said, I have been back in the studio a lot more lately. I've done some painting late at night when the kids are asleep. And most recently, I've started to make, again, pebble bellies. Pebble bellies are little smooth, dark stones that I gather by hand, one at a precious time, from this gorgeous beach about eight hours north from where I live, here in British Columbia, where the orcas rub their bellies on the beach. And it's one of only two beaches in the world that we know of where they do this particular behavior. It's a social behavior and they do it together in groups, frolicking and socializing, uh, having fun. And it's amazing to witness. I've sat on the beach 12 feet from orcas who are rubbing their bellies on the beach there. It's absolutely magical. And I make these necklaces called pebble bellies. And I started to make them again recently. There is a waiting list for these and it is worth the wait, I promise you. And I also want to make sure you know about the guided meditations and journal prompts and worksheets and other kind of homeworky style stuff that I've been offering you. At the end of each episode, I am starting to make sure that there's some sort of activity for you to bring to life the lesson and the learning and the juiciness from each episode. And above and beyond that, I'm also recording some guided meditations for my Patreon members. So you'll get access to those when you become a Patreon. You can have the whole library of everything I've ever created. And I've also made some available for individual purchase for people who want to have access to some of that content, but who aren't maybe ready to make the commitment of becoming a monthly Patreon supporter. If you're not part of the Creative Genius family yet, it's a private Facebook group. It's a beautiful little community that's sprouting up and it's a safe space to share about your creative struggles and joys and what you're working on and what you're excited about. And I wanted you to know how much we would love for you to be there with us. Everything I've just mentioned can all be found on katesheppardcreative.com. That's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D, creative.com. Just search for the thing that you're looking for, whether it's Pebble or family. If you can't easily find the thing you're looking for, just drop me a DM at Kate Shepherd Creative, and I'm happy to get back to you. And I'm pretty quick about those things. We got lots of gorgeous reviews this week. Thank you for continuing to send those in. I truly feel that they're gifts from you to me. They really fill my heart. This one was from D Cars, came via Apple Podcasts. D wrote, Kate radiates warmth and sincerity in this podcast. 
Her guests are interesting and informative, and the questions she asks go much deeper than art supplies. They speak to the heart of the creative. They inspire you to ask yourself some of these same questions and to dig deep into the mindset of your own creative soul. Truly a gift. Thank you, Kate. D, thank you for saying that. You articulated exactly what my intent is with this show. You know, I want this to be something that inspires the listener to look into themselves and find out the answers to the things that they're looking for because all of these answers are ultimately inside of us. When we hear something out in the world, you know, whether it's between me and a guest or something that you heard on the radio or read in a book somewhere, when it resonates really deeply, it's not because it's a new thing. It's because this is something that already lived in your heart and it's a remembering. And I really want people to remember how creativity lives in each and every one of us. So Dee, thank you for that gorgeous review. And if you haven't left a review yet, please take a minute to do that today. It really does bring me so much joy. Keeps me going on the days when I'm feeling like maybe I can't. And there are days like that. You know, this is a lot of work. Uh, And also it really helps people who haven't maybe listened to the show yet, who are deciding whether or not to to listen to the podcast for the first time, helps them decide whether or not it's a click worth making. So it really does have a nice ripple effect when you take a minute to leave a review. And you can just do that by going to Apple Podcasts and scrolling down to the bottom and leaving a review. I'm really excited to share with you today's guest. There are so many wonderful moments in this episode and practical, useful things that you can take with you into your art practice that will not only deepen your acceptance and love of your flaws and how your flaws actually make you better, but also practical advice on how to get started in your own art career if you haven't done that yet. Susan Logaretzi is a special human being. She's got that amazing rebel energy, uh, but it's kind of hidden in this quiet, almost demure personality. But she does reference her own inner delinquent a few times, which I love. How do we find our inner delinquent that just wants to break the rules? So important for creativity. Susan has an eye condition called strabasmus, which causes her to not see in three dimensions. And as you can imagine, as an artist, that might be a little bit of an impediment, right? Obviously, that was difficult for her. But really, this flaw, and I put that in quotes, was ultimately the thing that allowed her to create art in a way that nobody else can. She sees the world in an absolutely unique way, and her work is stunning. Susan has done some incredible large-scale public art projects, and her largest one is a staggering 10,000-square-foot installation with 28 wall pieces at the Phoenix airport. She gives some really accessible, useful suggestions and pointers for how to get grants locally in your region. I'm very excited for you to hear this episode, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Here's my conversation with Susan Logaretzi. Susan, thank you for coming to talk to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You're coming to us from Los Angeles where you live, right? Correct. Yes. I like to give people an image of like where I'm in Vancouver and you're in Los Angeles. I think people like to sort of have an idea of where is everybody? And on that note, for for, for our listeners who don't yet know you, I wondered if you would start us off by telling us a little bit about your career as an artist and some of the inspiration behind your amazing work. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you the real, the the brief life story, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Um, I was born and raised um, in Monterey, California, on the Central Coast. 
And uh, my parents were not artists, actually. Uh, my mom had an English degree and my dad um, was from Albania. He came here as a refugee after World War II. They were older parents. And so they were artists, but their value system was arts driven, I guess you can say. Like we had a lot of books in our house. We had a lot of paintings, like original paintings. You know, art, the arts were very important. We were a creative family. We were not allowed to watch television too much. So I grew up kind of like writing plays with my brother and sister and just doing creative things. My dad passed away when I was in high school. And after that, I was sort of, I wouldn't say I was a juvenile delinquent, but I was like juvenile delinquent adjacent, you could say. And I ended up flunking out of high school and uh, going to junior college. I got to take my GED. My mom told me I could either get a job or go to college. So I went to college. And I started studying art there. And that really kind of awakened the artist in me, I would say. That's when my kind of art life started. So I did that for a couple of years and I got a scholarship to go to art school in San Francisco. And I ended up at the San Francisco Art Institute where I received my bachelor's of fine arts degree and met my husband there. And that was a really interesting school. It just closed actually this last year. They just had their last graduating class. It was the only art school, I think, maybe even in the world that didn't give design degrees. It was just a fine art school. When you walked in the door, it was like you were treated like an artist. You were to start your life's work. You know, there wasn't, there were classes, but it wasn't really driven towards assignments. So that was very powerful. And then after that, I ended up moving to Austin, Texas with my husband. And we lived there for a couple of years and just had terrible jobs and lived and made art and showed it wherever we could. And that was really fun and freeing. And then decided we wanted to go to graduate school. So we moved back to California, to Los Angeles. And I ended up getting my MFA at Cal State Long Beach. And then when I was in graduate school, I also worked at the Getty Museum and I continued to work there after graduate school. And that was really an important part of my artistic path as well, just to sort of see that legacy building the other side of things. And then I was also showing in galleries. What was the job there? I was like an administrative assistant. I worked in the service department within the museum. The department would actually get objects from all over the museum, photograph them, and they would end up in books and on like the banners you'd see around town, advertising shows and brochures and things like that. So I would coordinate the, how the objects would move in and out of the photography studios. So it was really interesting because I got to see a lot of things like Gauguin's cane and like weird stuff that like, you know, that was, came for conservation that was never displayed. It was a really interesting education that I got paid for, <laughs> which was great. And I was also showing in galleries, uh, making my art at night because it was like a 40-hour week job. I had to kind of squeeze in my art making around that. Uh, but I was showing in galleries and I started selling out shows and getting commissioned work. And I quit that job in 2005 and started just making a living off of arts ever since then. And what was your art at that time? I'm imagining you've, you've sort of discovered yourself as an artist by going to school and you had this amazing experience where you were just like seen and treated as though you already are an artist. Like, and that is, like you said, powerful, right? When we yes. see something and then the person gets to step into that. So you've had that experience. Now you're making art and you're doing... What kind of work were you making then? Is it similar to what you're doing now or...? Uh, when I was in graduate school, that's when I started making the work that I'm making now, sort of this type okay. of work where it's aerial views of yep. cities and um, kind of uh, very kind of chaotic some oftentimes and very detail-oriented. I've always done landscape-based work. When I, I was in junior college and an undergrad, it was more imagined, I would say. I had a lot of interesting exercises I would just do that I still implement now in different ways. Like I would, I did a lot of on-site drawing and painting. So I would just go to a location and make sketches or even I would just ride the bus a lot. So I would draw when I was on the bus and then I would take all this stuff home and 
and and uh, oftentimes I'd flip the drawings over and cut them up or tear them up and then try to reassemble them and then make another piece from that. Just doing kind of playful. Where did you get that? Where did that come from? <laughs> like, where did that that impulse? Uh, yeah, it's just, just sort of like trying different ways to kind of put abstraction into the work. I've always liked that kind of conflict between realism and abstraction. That's always been interesting to me, you know, where those boundaries are and, and sort of playing with that. So I had a lot of exercises I would do to push that as far as I could. And did those come from you or were they, did they come from school? Like, were they exercises uh, given to you or did you come up with them on no, your own? No, a lot of them I came up with my own. Some of them were inspired by assignments, you know, but, you know, just looking for new ways all the time to kind of reinvigorate this idea of abstraction and realism. You know, and a lot of that came too from, I should talk about this a little bit, that I actually have an eye condition where I don't see it three-dimensionally. This quote-unquote failure to be able to interpret everyday life, of using that as a tool, as a jumping-off point to talk about other things. We have something in common. I, I see three-dimensionally, but I don't see with my eyes closed. I can't, I have no yes, ability I to, to that visualize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing until until that episode, actually. I, I went down a deep uh, dive into Google about, and there's Reddit threads about it. Well, and we're just starting, it's one of those things where if you don't ever check in with somebody about it, there's it would never come up. You just assume that everybody sees the world yeah. similarly to the yeah. way you do. So. What is that condition? What is your condition called? Uh, it's called strabismus. About 3 to 5% of the population has it. it. Lazy eye is what people know it as, but it's a lot more complicated than that, as, uh, as I've learned. I was born with my eyes totally crossed, and I had four surgeries when I was a kid to uncross them, but I never saw with binocular vision. I never, you know, most people, their eyes kind of come together to a point. Mine, I see individually. Uh, and usually I have a dominant eye. I actually just had my fifth surgery about six weeks ago. So I'm still kind of recovering from that process. You know, when I first started making art, I was not the best student because I really, I couldn't, these skill and drill assignments that, you know, you do in the beginning, which are incredibly important, even if you don't do them well, you learn to see. And that is so important. She's, mm -hmm. You know, I remember the teacher sort of saying, I don't know what's the object and what's the space around the object. You know, and I remember thinking, well, I don't always know either you know, in life. Yeah. And so um, just thinking about how, you know, how can you use that as a tool? You know, seeing differently as an artist is an asset, unlike day-to-day -day life. When I discovered that I had this thing that made me see differently, I, there was a, and I probably talked about this in the episode that you listened to, I don't remember, I, there was a grief period where I felt like, how can I be an artist and see the world so differently? And and also be missing this ability to imaginate and like, you know, see this. It felt like I was missing something because of my nature. It didn't take me long to go, okay, Kate, like snap out of it. Yes. Just stop feeling sorry for yourself. Where's Where's the gift? What's the gift in this? It sounds like you're saying that you also, I mean, it's an asset, but would you even just go as far as to say that it's been a gift for you? And in what way? I know that's tough because there, you know, I'm, there are like online support groups on Facebook and Reddit where people, you know, share their experiences and support each other. And actually, I probably wouldn't even have had this last surgery, which has been incredibly helpful to me without those people. But a lot of people, you know, wouldn't do anything not to have this. And I can't say that I'm in that group because I really have benefited from it. My life would be in totally different if I didn't have it. You know, I wouldn't have gotten to do the things I've done. I wouldn't know my husband. Like all of it would be, I don't think I'd be an artist. 
I, I doubt it. Wow. I, I had questions I think I wouldn't have had otherwise. I, yeah, I, I have to say I it's weird that I am, I do feel blessed by it in a, in a strange way, even though, you know, especially during this time where I've had surgery, there's a lot of pain after surgery, felt like I had glass in my eye for a couple of weeks. You know, it's hard to say every day's gift. You know? <laughs> there's definitely moments I had where I thought, why me, you know, but why not me too? There's this sort of idea that runs through our culture that we should all sort of be a little bit homogenous, right? Like every, there's normal and everybody should kind of fall within the Oh, sure. And and actually the things that make us different really are what make us so special. You know, and I've said before, you know, I, it's a variation of a quote that I read one time, the thing that you hate so much about your art is actually the thing that makes it so special. You know, when you're having a hard day and you don't love your art and you're being hard on yourself, that that thing that you're trying to not be is actually the magic that other people are drawn yeah. to. And so it is important, I think, that we look at these ways that we're different. And because a lot of the aphantasia support groups that I've seen are like super victim-y. Everybody's like, mm. I don't have this thing. And like, it means I don't, like, that's all they're looking at. Like, oh. that's all they're looking at. And for me, I'm like, oh, those that's true. I don't have those things. But like, my intuition is off the charts. I know things that there's no way most people would ever know because mm-hmm. I feel and sense and know from a different part of my being. Yep. It's just the way a blind person would have to navigate different, you know, your senses would change. Yeah, yeah. To compensate for, you know, I think it is important that we start to really look at ourselves and say, I'm different in this way. And how is that a gift? Yeah, I value that. I, I, you know, I think the discussion is really changing. You know, the last couple of years is that this idea of a facial difference, you know, and just those words together, that those aren't words I grew up knowing. That That's nothing I can say to someone who maybe bullied me or ridiculed me. Like definitely that happened to me growing up. You know, it's it, we look for symmetrical faces. So if you have an eye that's going off in one direction, you know, people notice and they are always nice about it. So, you know, I can see where people... You go down that kind of wormhole of, of of victimhood, but yeah, and at the end of the day, that's not a helpful way to move forward, you know. Um, but the conversation has changed so quickly around these issues too that it's it's really amazing. I I love that for culture right now that we can actually put words to these things and and call it out, you know. Uh, what there was that song that came out? It was like a Lizzo song where she talks about being spastic and people complained and said I actually have that and it's really terrible and she actually rewrote the song and re-released it and it's just like yeah that's amazing you know that's so great and rather than you know people feel having to just feel bad whenever they hear that song you know it's like these conversations actually you know there's a downside to social media and everybody having an opinion but also there are benefits to it as well I think that there's conversations coming up that wouldn't yeah. have happened otherwise so I'm grateful absolutely Okay, so I want to go back to, so you're out of school, you're showing your work, and you have your first gallery show in LA, and it sold out. What was going through your mind? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was amazing. I waited until the second one sold out before I quit <laughs> my job. <laughs> Didn't <laughs> quit right you. away. <laughs> <laughs> Needed that health insurance and other things. Uh-huh. But then I started getting commissioned work too. And that was actually really cool because I started doing bigger things and those bigger things ended up in public spaces and like in boardrooms and and lobbies and places like that. And then I started to say, okay, I could do public art, you know, and so I started researching on how to get into that because it, I, now that you can actually get a degree in public art, I mean, you get a master's in, in it, but there was not a lot of information on how to get started. You know, how do you go from being a gallery artist to 
to working on a big project out of, you know, and fabricating something and using someone else's money <laughs> to do that. So well, I've always wondered about that. What What is that path like? If there's somebody listening to this right now going, well, actually, I would love to create public art and how, like, do they need to go get a degree? Are there, how can you do it? Are there other ways? Yeah, I mean, you definitely don't need one. Uh, start small, I would say. My first project, I made, I didn't make money off of it. And usually, I've heard the first two or three sometimes you don't make money. So the first one I did was a temporary project at LAX. Um, they have an amazing program there where they hire uh, contemporary artists to, and they give them anywhere for like six to $12,000 to create art for a space. And you can hang artwork you already have, you know, and then just pocket the money. Or the smarter move probably is to fabricate something and then you get the experience doing that and, and pictures of it. And you can use that to catapult yourself into the next thing. But even, uh, I don't know if they do this in Vancouver, but the utility boxes around town in LA, they have a lot of them in other cities, you know, where people paint those. I mean, that's a great way to get started. Go approach a store in your neighborhood and paint a mural, you know, go to your neighborhood council, your city council and try to get money for that. So at least you don't have to put out for materials, you know, start small like that. And then you take those images and you can start applying for bigger things because it is a very democratic process, actually, you know, unlike the art world, which can be very insidery, the public art world is governed by laws. And so you actually apply and you interview and you have to have a whole proposal written with a budget and everything like that. And anybody can apply. Really, you just have to be over 18. There's websites where you can go and find different cities that have calls out. And then, you know, if you're lucky, you get an interview. And then out of that interview, four or five people, they pick one. And so you may get to that final, I get to that final place a lot of the time. And, you know, you put a lot of work into those proposals. They pay you a little sometimes you don't get it. So that could be frustrating, but you know, it's part yeah. of the ride. So <laughs> that's life though, right? Oh, those are such yeah. great ideas. I hope I, I can actually kind of, my spotty senses are telling me that there's all kinds of people listening to this right now going, oh my goodness, I need to look up my local utility people to find the boxes. And yeah. that's a very exciting, accessible, doable thing. Google your city's arts commission. I would say every city, every city has an arts commission or, you know, contact your city council, mayor's office and ask who's in charge of art because somebody is, you know, there's usually a budget for that. Um, in California, they actually have a percent of new construction costs that often go towards art. That's by law that has to happen. Not every state has that. So we're, you know, fortunate in that way. People can look for what's going on in their, in their region. Yeah. Cause I mean, I've worked with materials I've never worked with and you learn as you go to, right. you know, they, they guide you. Tell us about the floor and wall pieces you designed for the Phoenix airport. How did that whole thing come up? Yeah, that was probably the largest project. I mean, I might ever do. You know, it was a ten thousand square foot floor, and twenty eight wall pieces. Amazingly large canvas. Very intimidating to cover a space that large. <laughs> yeah, I applied. Then again, you know, I just I applied. I had a couple of large projects under my belt at that point, and that helps. Oftentimes, you have to manage the budget yourself. So when you get into these larger projects, they want someone who has experience. But I didn't manage the budget. They actually picked a fabricator for me and they paid them directly. So I didn't have to do that part. I just had to focus on designing the artwork, which was enough work <laughs> in and of itself. So Terrazzo Floor and Terrazzo is, uh, for people that aren't familiar with that, is a mixture of rocks and different aggregates. Uh, like, you know, like it could be quartz, granite, uh, mixed in with things like a broken mirror, mother of pearl, also mixed in with some type of epoxy and paint. And so um, what I ended up doing was creating this 
kind of concept of a glass bottom plane. And as you, it's a, it's a long hallway. It's a connector bridge that connects security to the gates in the Phoenix airport. As you walk through the piece, you go from these sort of images of city night lights on the floor through daytime houses and these kind of irrigation fields that surround, not irrigation fields, like hay fields, things like that, that surround Phoenix. And then it ends up in um, the sort of mountain area. And then there's wall pieces that are shaped like airplane windows where you see these similar views out of. So you really kind of, it's this kind of artified idea of a glass bottom plane. Wow, I would love to see it. What, so, and have you seen people interacting with it? And, and what was that like? I have, yeah. It was so exciting. I mean, it's, I, I went for the opening, which was great. And, you know, they had the mayor and they had, you know, politicians there and, and the CEO of Southwest Airlines and cause it's Southwest Terminal. And that was exciting and everything. But really, it was so fun to go back and actually photograph it with just regular people walking on it and dragging their luggage. And kids, kids get it. I mean, they just plugged right in, jumping from, you know, because there's aerial views of houses, jumping from house to house to bush to bush. And there's like a lot of sage, sage bush elements in there as well. And anyway, they, they just sort of danced through the whole floor. All the, all the kids just like really plugged in. And then people doing selfies in front of the wall pieces. And it was great. Really gave me a lot of joy to see that. I can't even imagine. I'm curious as, as you're describing that to me, and then also just knowing what your other work is like, how landscapes speak to you. Like why, why like I love flowers. That's all yeah. I ever want to paint. Is I can't imagine trying to paint anything other than flowers. And uh-huh. now I'm looking at you like, you're probably like, I can't imagine ever making anything other than these. Amazing. <laughs> so what is the draw for you? Locked what in. is the, yeah. <laughs> so what's that about? What is the, what is the... <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's always been landscapes. I mean, I think, you know, growing up on the Central Coast, definitely there's a long history there of landscape art. That was definitely a lot of the first artwork that I really saw and connected to as well, I think, was landscape-based work. Um, You know, from a psychological standpoint, I guess I would say, you know, I mentioned like my father came here as a refugee. He never went home. My mom came from a military family. She moved around a lot. It was really important for them to have us grow up in in the same house like we came home from the hospital in. You know, this idea of place as stable and fixed versus ever-changing and, and unstable. I, I think I, I thought a lot about that, you know, at a young age. And also, you know, as I got older, I really, especially with cities, you know, it's a place where we work issues out in culture. Manufactured spaces are the places where, you know, our hopes and dreams and also sort of the not-so-great elements of our consciousness gets activated. I really enjoy that. And I'm always finding new places within it. That's very exciting for me. I think I would have stopped a long time ago if I felt like I was done. And I'm sure you feel that way too. You know, it's like there's always more there, you know? Yeah, Um, that resonates. And I have no problem finding it. Yeah. And also, you know, one thing I remember when I was younger too, uh, when I was in art school, I went to the art, the painter Richard Dubenkorn to his retrospective and he was there in a wheelchair. He was very old. I think he died like six months later and like all his art was there. You know, you could really see this person's vision and their, their, the, their life's work just spread out, you know, in front of him and us. I just really remember thinking, yeah, that's that's something, you know, to just see this this voice. This episode of Creative Genius is brought to you by Morning Moon Nature Jewelry. Instantly familiar, yet unlike anything you've ever owned, this extraordinary handcrafted heirloom jewelry is famous for its incredible detail of actual textures from nature. Get 15% off your first order and feel the wonder. Use coupon code CREATIVEGENIUS at lovemorningmoon.com. 
what is creativity and what is it trying to do through us? Over there, it's landscapes and the message that's coming through you. And over here, it's floral things. And it, I think, you know, it seems to move through all of its different channels, i.e. us, in, in all these ways, mm-hmm. but with real intent. It really seems to be trying to do something. So I want, I'm really curious to get your definition of what is creativity? What is this energy, you know, that was in his voice and that's in your voice and that's in my voice and it's in all the voices of people listening? What is it? in your mind. Yeah, it's just the, that life force, you know, that that chi. It's, I mean, it's interesting. It's like almost like if I could say it, I wouldn't have to do it. And as a kid, you just know it. See, everybody knows it. I think most people do as a child. And then there's this sort of amnesia that happens, you know, and it's just so hard to get back to it. But it's such a vital part of being alive. So what is that amnesia? Yeah, that's, I mean, you can say it's, you know, capitalism, you know, <laughs> I mean, part of me thinks this, you know, I was listening to other podcasts where a woman was talking about when she went to Guatemala and it's like, it's just in a culture, it's, it's, they're intertwined and there's a lot of cultures like that and ours isn't one of them. But, you know, that can change. We can change that. I, mean, I think this podcast is definitely adding to that change, you know. Yeah, w- what happens? I mean, we get, you just get distracted, you know, there's a lot of distractions. I think um, one thing that I learned as an art student as a center of a hard truth is if you really want to make art, you just need to put your butt in the seat and do it, you know, and consistently do it, you know, and that's not an easy, it's very simple, but it's also very difficult and challenging too, especially if people have families. I don't have children. You know, I think people that have kids, I mean, hats off to you if you also have a creative life because that's really time consuming and it can be very challenging, I think you know, give everything the time that it needs. It's also really difficult to put your butt in the seat when there's this mountain of limiting beliefs that you're sort of raised in and the fabric of the culture that you're in, you know, like only certain people are artists and they're very select few and you're probably not one of them. And, you know, art, good art has to look like this and or sound like this or whatever, taste, feel, look, whatever it is, like a certain way. And so it's really hard to actually get yourself yeah. into your seat to do the art. Did you find that you had to come face-to-face with any of those limiting beliefs in your own trajectory? I mean, I feel pretty lucky because as I was saying, like my parents were pretty supportive. They didn't like take me to classes or, you know, invest in me in that way, but they just let me do whatever I wanted and and basically let, you know, the idea of serious play was in big in our house. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people have te- like kind of bad teachers that, that send negative messages. Sometimes you're not doing this right. You know, there's a right way and a wrong way, that type of thing. Um, that can really stop people from wanting to pursue it. I think I didn't have too much of that. I did. I did when I was first starting out. My good friend who would sit next to me in our art classes in college. She was amazing. So talented. I mean, could. You know, I remember she made a painting of a pool table. It looked like you could pick the cue ball right off the table. I mean, she was incredible. And sitting next to her was, oh, I didn't love it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> me with my lack of 3D vision. I'm like, oh boy, oh, you know, I'm never wow. going to be her. You know, and it was hard not to, to silence those messages and say, you don't want to be her. She's her. She gets to be her. And that's great. You know, um, you know, I definitely think the art world really benefits from a lot of that negative messaging of this is art and that's not because, you know, it's an investment for people now and they need 
a certain style to be more of an investment at certain times than other times. And so this idea that, you know, it's not, there's not just an array and, and all of the array is good and matters, you know, that you can't plug dollars and cents into that idea. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What was the thing when you were sitting next to her? I'm just trying to imagine you in the classroom with her um, hyper-realistic art. I mean, I would be super intimidated by that too. (laughs) Yeah. But what was the thing in you that it almost seems like something whispered to you, like, don't worry, that's just not your thing. Like, cause you kept going, you didn't mm-hmm. let that stop you. You, you kept doing yeah. your thing and look, and look what you've created. So what was that? Do you remember if you look back, can you, can you think of what that was? Yeah, I think I did have this kind of already this kind of, uh, I don't know, how would you call it? It was almost like a wildness to my line and, and this really like I already kind of had my voice a little back then and I and people recognize that too. So I got some positive feedback. Not that that should matter, but <laughs> but but it doesn't uh, hurt. For what it doesn't hurt for what I was doing, you know, even though it was different than what she was doing and I thought, you know, yeah, it's okay to 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 not be able to do that. And I love doing it so much. I mean, that's another thing. I am definitely a compulsive maker. You know, I I couldn't stop if I wanted to, you know. I mean, it's just not possible unless I physically had to, you know. (laughs) What does that look like in your daily practice, like your daily creative practice? Like, what are the things that you do to get your butt in the seat, to to nurture and grow? And what are your, what's your rhythm and your your routine when it comes to creativity? Yeah, it's been so interesting listening to your podcast and how other people do it too. Other people have like, uh, really rigid um, studio time for like a few months and then they don't do it at all for a few months and then it's all about outreach, you know? Um, I've structured my life where I want to maximize studio time because as I said, I'm a compulsive maker and it's like, I feel like I'm just most, I'm just happier when I'm making stuff every day for as much as I can, <laughs> so, which maybe isn't always healthy. I definitely have workaholic tendencies, but then there is this reality of I run a business and I have to, spend time doing that as well. And and I like doing that too. So I structure my day. I Since I get work for myself, I don't like getting up super early. So I definitely have a slow morning. That's the gift to myself. And then I do kind of office admin stuff during the more nine to five part of the day in case there's people I'm emailing back and forth with people. Because the bulk of my business is like municipalities or people who are usually contacting me nine to five. And then late afternoon, I'll get in the studio until about midnight. I would say three wow. to midnight is ideal. Wow. But these days, I just had surgery six weeks ago. I'm not back at full full capacity yet. So um, it's a little bit of a shorter day. But uh, but actually, like day six after surgery, I was already drawing again. <laughs> so. Can't stop you. Can't stop, won't stop. That's amazing. Well, <laughs> yeah. so that's, that's an interesting thing, too, about uh, creative flow. You know, a lot of people talk about... Uh, or creative blockages. I mean, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. It seems like you have like this current, this big current of energy, creative energy that's just coming through and it's almost hard to stop. Do you ever come up against these blockages? I do. It looks different for me, I think, in some ways because I, I mean, I could always make something, but I often feel that's not the best way to spend my creative time. Sometimes it's best to just stop and plan for a while design, research, let things simmer, and then go back rather than work, 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 which is what I want to do. It's not always the best move for me in terms of actually creating something that where I feel like it's it's new and vibrant and exciting for me 
too, because uh, I can get stuck in a routine. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the, oh, now I'm just doing this kind of formulaic thing of, yeah. Yeah. Would you say that you had to create some discipline for yourself around knowing when to pull back and knowing when to do different things as you yes. described? And I would say public arts really helped me with that even more because, and this is why a lot of artists I think hate doing public art is because it is, you do have to work with a committee. It's collaborative with a community sometimes and you're on their schedule. You get to do your design work, you know, you bring it to the powers that be, whoever that is. Sometimes, yeah, it's the community who's actually going to be living with it. And then they give their feedback. And then I let that simmer for a while. I usually don't ever go right back to work. I need to think about that and and focus on it. And then um, go back and revisit it and see what their remarks, like where that fits and where it doesn't. You know, I get to decide that. Um, But it's really made me slow down because it's not all on my schedule. And I prefer that sometimes, actually. Although most artists don't like it, I think, because they just want to be in control all the time. And I get that impulse too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's a human thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of us got into this too, so you can create this world that you have total control over. <laughs> like, I wanted to ask you about uh, how you feel about your pieces when they're done, but also along the way. What is the journey of a piece from start to finish? And is there a point where you're like, I don't know where this is going. I don't like this. Or is it all really planned out? And you know, like, what is the journey? of? What's the process? Yeah. Uh, Well, mostly I work in colored pencil. I do paint as well when I have to work faster, especially with the Phoenix floor. Um, I had to work so big too. I couldn't do it. And you you actually cannot fabricate really detailed work. So I had to paint. And that was great because it really did free me up too. Uh, but mostly I work in colored pencils, so there's not a lot of going back in and fixing once you're in the coloring portion of making the piece. But when I'm actually drawing it, I love to be totally out of control, and I will draw it upside down. I turn it all every which way. I don't. I want. I want it to be at a point where I don't really know what's going on. You know, that's ideal. But it's also really hard to let my mind go to that and not want to say this is wrong. You know. So there's this. How do you do that? Yeah, it's this sort of push push pull where it's like, I do it for a while, and then there's this kind of the, the fear builds up, and then you have to have a little self talk in there and say, you know, this is actually going to be great, and if it's not, just throw it away. You know, that's an option. You know, right. I don't love spending a lot of time on something and never using it, but a lot of times I'll just roll it up and put it away, and then revisit it in a year or something, even cut it up and send it out as postcards, or you know, it's just kind of reimagine if things don't work out. But that's not the end of the world. But you need to, I need to kind of remind myself of that too, Um, especially when it is a business, you know, this idea of process and product are always going to be at odds somewhat, you know. Um, I don't think that ever gets easier. You just, for me, I get more comfortable with the unease. I think that's the, that's the secret of it is just, I mean, knowing, knowing that nothing's ever wasted, really, at the end of the day. That was thrilling when you were saying that you don't know how it's like you're working on it upside down and sideways and you're turning and because I think so many of us are really kind of laced up to be like, this has to look pretty at the end and I want it to look good. And and so I'm going to try to control, it's that control again, control it all along the way. But it's almost like you're delighting yourself, surprising yourself. Yeah. So is that how, so when you're done a piece, does it usually look the way you thought it would or 
I don't Just have a, a huge set like, intention. I have hopes, but I don't, okay. I don't usually have a huge set intention when I start. And the drawing part goes really fast. I try not to erase too much. I don't think about it too much. Yeah, I go. I try to find that delinquent adjacent, adjacent mind. You know, when I was fifteen, you know, and access that person and say, you know, f this, who cares, you know, and and let it sort of be wild, you know, because I do think I'd want that energy in the work, you know, otherwise it gets a little complacent. For sure, yeah, yeah. Is there like one piece that you've made that was really hard for you to let go of? Is there one that stands out? The one that got away? Yeah. Yeah, there's one I just sold recently and I it's in a great home and went to a screenwriter actually and I love that she has in her living room. Um, it's a big three by five foot piece of um, houses with swimming pools and it has these sort of undulating patterns in it, which before my surgery, I was actually having a really hard time seeing straight. And so I kind of um, use that as um, to kind of create these kind of op art illusions in the work. And I had that hanging in my house for a while and I don't usually hang up my own work. I mean, this uh, when I finish something, I hang it right away and then I put everything away usually. But I would have liked to have looked at that one a little longer. I'm really happy where it is. It yeah. went to a good home. Can we see a picture of that? Am I able to put a picture of that piece yeah. in the show oh, notes? Yeah. yeah. Okay. What's it called? Uh, Neighborhood Pools, it's called. Okay. We're going to put a picture of that in the show notes because I think everyone's going to want to see that. And, you know, I work from photos a lot, but lately I've been doing this more and more well. I'll take photographic imagery and then I'll sort of take something I like about it and alter it. So the image in that piece doesn't actually exist. It's just sort of a collage of a bunch of different ones. And I don't Photoshop that. I actually just have a bunch of um, images in my hand when I'm working and I pick one up, put one down and kind of just, you know, mind shop it rather than Photoshop it. So I'm very analog in my technical abilities. <laughs> so. I love that. I love that. Okay, so now I'm thinking about people who are listening to this, who are excited to stop caring so much and just get their hands going and get the butt in the seat and do all the things that we've been talking about. For the person who's listening to this, who's like, I really do want to step into being an artist full-time. I really want to give myself an opportunity to pursue this. I love it. I'm also a compulsive maker, but I don't have room to keep all these things in my own life. I do need to sell them and let them go. What do you think the most practical advice mm. is that you would give that person? That's a great question. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I would say it's probably going to be helpful if you're working within a genre that's well-known and that people like to purchase uh, imagery of and hang it around their home. You know, the landscape, portraits, um, things like that. It's always going to help if there's a genre that you can hook into. You know, with me, it's, you know, landscape, cityscape. That's going to be most important. I wish somebody had talked to me about that when I was starting out. And also, you know, what type of artist are you? What's your skill set in terms of just your personality? You know, are you a people person? Or do you love going out and meeting people? Well, then sales is probably going to be pretty easy for you. Is your work ephemeral? You know, well, then you need to get good at writing grants and um, access institutional support. You know, just think about where your skill set is as well as what your art's doing. It's kind of both things are important. I love spending a lot of time in a room alone. So I've had to learn like public speaking. You know, I have to go to get public art projects. You have to stand in a room full of people. <laughs> you know? So it's like not why I yeah. wanted to do this at all. But it's like, <laughs> so you are going to have to learn things too, you know, to support the work. I remember when I graduated from undergrad, the diploma, reading the diploma, it said this 
degrees conferred upon this person with all the rights and responsibilities. And I always remember mm. that really stuck stuck with me, you know, that you do have the right to call yourself an artist and to say, I ha- even if you don't have a degree, but if you're really in it, you know, and but you also have a responsibility to your work and also to art, to this large conversation that's been going on since humans organize themselves. You're part of it. Take that seriously. What is that responsibility to you? What does that entail? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's definitely beyond ego. So getting out of your comfort zone is a big, big part of getting beyond your ego, <laughs> right? You know, yeah, someone told me once, the ego hates change and it's not, it, it doesn't want you to be happy. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So whatever you can do to <laughs> get past that, I think is good. Um, in terms of art, you know, I think, yeah, your part, how are you going to add to the conversation? You know, what is it that you have to say that hasn't been said? Or are you adding to something else, something someone else has said? You know, you have a responsibility to that. And so think about that, you know, it's a serious thing. It's not about just creating content that, you know, you're adding to all this information and content that's out there. It's like, you know, you really want to think deeply about what specifically you can add. You know, we all have something. Absolutely. It's not like, oh, well, you know, I didn't have a difficult childhood or I don't have life experience. I don't have anything to say. Absolutely. Everybody has something to say. You know, you just have to have to figure out within all that's been said, you know, how you're going to add to that. And it's a big responsibility. If you had to distill it down to a sentence or two, what would you say you're trying to say through your work? I really want people to feel the delight and wonder that we feel in cities and in built spaces, but also think about what can be improved. That duality of that conflict of how we can do things better and inspire people to want to want better things, to see the fun and beauty and to want more. I love that. That it's like the gratitude, being grateful for what you have, but also not letting that let you become complacent. It's like, and let's continue to build something. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. It was hard for me to get to that. In school, it was definitely like that, be careful because to be too delightful or happy or to want that, other people to get that is, you know, it's it's not art or it's, you know, you need, you need to go to show dystopias. And, um, but I disagree. The older I get, I'm like, people need delight and wonder more than anything. Well, I think that's one of the other limiting beliefs about creativity is that you have to be a starving artist. You have to be in pain. It has to be anguish and agony and hurt. And I don't think that's true about art at all, but yet we believe that in so many different ways. Yep. So I love that you actually came right out and said that. I think that's really important. I cannot believe that we're at the end of our <laughs> time. It's cra- so crazy. It's literally crazy to me. Like, like, like did I, is my clock wrong? <laughs> just like that. So a couple of things I want to tell you. I want to tell you about the word that I pulled for the show for oh, us today. Yes, please. I pull a card for, for every show and it's um, the, the word for us was simplicity. Oh, <laughs> that's great. That's great. So why does that give you that giggle? <laughs> because my work's so complicated. It's like the exact opposite of, <laughs> of what I do. But in some ways, it is very simple. You know, the content of it, I think, is very direct, you know, what I'm trying to communicate, even though the work itself is very complicated. <laughs> so that's a, that's a great one. I love that little fractal right there, like the truth inside the truth. I yeah. love it. <laughs> So I have one more question for you. I ask this at the end of every show. It's the billboard question. If you could have a billboard that 
magically everybody in the world who longed to be an artist or longed to be able to express this stuff that was inside of them, but for whatever reason and for all the reasons we've talked about, didn't believe that they could or didn't believe that they had it in them or didn't believe it would be possible, but they were going to read this billboard, what would you what would you put on the billboard? So one thing that I'm trying to do is um, stay off my phone more because I'm addicted to my phone like a lot of people. So I made this, um, I made a cover for it that I rubber band around my phone and it says this on it. Serious play every day. It's the only way. Oh my God. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's so great. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. So thank you. uh, Tell us where we can go and we'll put it all in the show notes, but also just for people listening right now who want to pop over and just visit you, where can they find you on social media? Where can they find you on the internet? What's the best place? Yeah, I'm on all the things except TikTok. I'm on uh, Instagram at Susan Logaretzi. I'm on Twitter at Subu, S-O-O-B-O-O. I'm on Facebook. Mostly I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And then if you want to see my work in person, if you are heading through LAX, I have four original paintings and a large mural that's in the Southwest baggage claim terminal in LAX. And then, of course, the piece in Phoenix as well. And that'll be there forever. That's permanent. Well, thank you so much. This has been so enjoyable. And I I really feel very honored to be here speaking with you. I love what you're doing. And I've just been so excited to be a part of it. I'll keep listening. I love it. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you. And it was a joy to talk to you. I really, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Isn't Susan amazing? Didn't she just make you want to go and find your inner delinquent and break some rules when it came to creativity? I loved when she talked about putting all this time into these sketches and drawings and then ripping them up and reassembling them in weird different ways because that's how she sees the world. She wanted to have a visual representation of that that she could share in her art. And I just thought that was so amazing. The word for today's show is simplicity. I wanted to offer that to you in a way that maybe is a little bit different than we normally think of this word. Normally we think of this word as like stripping down or taking away bare bones, you know, simplifying things. But what came up for me when I picked this word for us, and it became apparent for me throughout this conversation, what this word was trying to say to us today is about the simplicity of being who we really are. You know, here we are with our flaws and our strengths and our weirdnesses. And when we try to fit ourselves into this little box that the world has created for us, it gets really complicated because that's not easy to do. But when we can, with simplicity, own who we are, flaws and all, and just bust out into the world and be that, We get to share our gifts in a way that have a profound impact when we can embrace the sense of simply being who and what we are. We're able to express ourselves in our truest way. And when we do that, we finally have something of value to add to this gorgeous conversation that's been going on since the beginning. If you take one thing from this episode today, I hope it's to ask yourself, What is the thing you came here to add to that conversation? And I want to guarantee you that it needs to be heard and seen and felt. And I want you to go do it. So on that note, the homework for today's episode is so important that I've made you a worksheet to help you with it. And if you want to access that, it's free. 
All you have to do is sign up for my newsletter and you'll automatically have access to it. You can do that at katesheppardcreative.com, K-A-T-E-S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D, creative.com. And you don't have to have the worksheet. I just find that it can be really useful to have a container for this mind exploration that we're going to do. So it's free. Sign up for the newsletter. You'll get a copy of it. I hope it's really helpful for you. Okay, so here's the assignment. Let's say twice a week between now and the next time you sit down and listen to an episode, which I hope is in about two weeks, you carve out 10 minutes to sit down and think about your flaws. This is one of those things where our protective parts can flare up. They get really defensive. They don't want us to look at our flaws. Or when they do, they want us to be really hard on them. So this is a very gentle, curious exploration of what have your what's your story been about what your flaws are up to now and that could be anything physical from you know you have a weird bent finger that doesn't let you hold a pencil the same way as all the other kids did in school or you see things differently or you're colorblind or you don't hear the same way as people around you or you have dyslexia and writing has been challenging reading has been, whatever it is, list all of them out just with curiosity. We're not trying to be hard on ourselves. So I want you to sit down and do that twice. Sit down and make two lists like that in the first week. And then in the second week, make yourself two more appointments for 10 minutes each where you sit down and you look at those lists and you start to see how those things have made you different and what those differences have facilitated for you. So in Susan's case, you know, she can't see things in three dimensions. And when you look at her work, they're this wonky, angular, you kind of can't tell where the object begins and the space around them ends. And that's what's magical about them. And so how has your flaw, quote unquote, all these flaws that you've come up with in this list, how have they made you different? And how have they made your contribution unlike anything else that anybody else could have created? And if you feel brave enough to share those with us, make sure you're signed up for the Creative Genius family on Facebook. It's a private Facebook group. And pop in there and just start to share. That's exactly the kind of conversation we're having in there. Oh my goodness, I thought this was my flaw this whole time. And look, lo and behold, this is what makes me so special. This is my superpower. I had no idea. And now I'm off. So uh, share those things with us. And let me know how that goes. Let me know how that homework goes. I really do love to hear from you. You got this. Make sure you're signed up for my newsletter. I pick a random person from my email list once every month and send them an original piece of my artwork. It's one of my favorite things to do. It takes a lot to put together the show. Please consider supporting me to do it. You can visit patreon.com slash Podcast to find out more. And please keep my jewelry or paintings, and especially gratitude birds, which keep selling out, in mind next time you're looking for a treat for yourself or for a loved one. You can find everything I've mentioned on katesheppardcreative.com. Thank you for being here, for opening your heart, and for listening. My wish and intention for this show is that it reach into your heart and stir the beautiful thing that lives in there. May you find and unleash your creative genius.